Thank you, choir. Greg, you sounded great just now. <laughs> I'm sorry I disappeared for a moment. I had to wash my hands because I realized bicycle tires are awfully dirty before you handle communion. Please open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. You can find that on your pew Bible on page 961. 961. <clears throat> Our title this morning is The God Whom We Call Savior. So let's briefly consider the essential teachings of, the redemption, of our redemption through the cross and the empty tomb. That Jesus Christ was sent by the Father to be the one mediator between God and humanity. Here's a question. Do I have to believe that Jesus Christ literally, physically, rose from the grave? That's a very good question. It's been put to me. It's a question that I put to uh, leaders in the churches that I've been part of uh, all my life. Responses I've heard from individuals, from church leaders, from priests, from individuals in my life have been a range from, well, Christ didn't actually literally rise from the, the grave. No one rises from the grave, but, but metaphorically, in your heart, he is raised. And, and for the disciples, they, they loved him so much that the, the story became real to them. And so the story can become real to us as metaphor, but not literal. And then I've been part of churches and have had priests and pastors and others in my life and responded to this question No, this actually happened. He actually did rise from the grave. This this literally, physically happened, and it matters. And in my life, I've just turned 43 years old last week. In my life experience of seeing uh, the responses to this question from this whole range, and also how it plays out in a person's life, I've come to a conclusion I've seen this conclusion come out through the stamp of authenticity of the evidence, but also in my own life and the lives of those that I've trusted my faith to and have put this question to. I've been part of a church that would say it would be a metaphor, and when we would celebrate someone's life departing in a funeral service, there was no joy, there was no celebration, because at the end of the day, we really know that person is six feet down. And I've sought out answers. When my loved ones have gone, where are they? What's happened? Is there real hope or is this just something made up in my mind? And then I've seen it play out on the other end. Christians, brothers and sisters around me who've said, no, there is real hope. This is more than a metaphor. This is more than a philosophy. This is more than, well, we can all be entitled to various opinions. This actually happened, and it's changed our life, Pete, and it can change your life. And so this is where I've come in my journey from one end to another and back again with all the questions in faith and questions that you probably have as well that you ask, like the apostle, Lord, help me in my unbelief that either the biblical account of the resurrection of Christ is a fiction, a fantasy, 
a huge fraud or Christianity is factual, reliable, and Jesus' resurrection is the greatest feat in human history. There is no in-between. There is no middle ground that exists. The resurrection in history is either, it's either history or hoax, miracle or myth, fact or fantasy. And the Apostle Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he rests his case and puts all of his weight on. And he says, this is what is a first and most important, and this is what I pass on to you. So let's read what the Apostle writes, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, this is Peter, and then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. They've, they've passed away. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. So Lord, I claim these words for myself. By your grace, O God, I am what I am. And your grace toward me was not in vain. Because I wasn't buying into a philosophy. I wasn't buying into a a pack of ideals. I was believing and putting my hope and my assurance in what I believe to be true. And what scripture gives witness to. Historical evidence And evidence, most of all, Lord, the stamp of authenticity in the people that you've put around me in my life. But God, we come to this place of worship from all walks of life. Some of us are on that continuum of trying to make sense of what is being said here in this text. And so, Lord, through these simple words I've prepared, would you do a good work in us? Holy Spirit, would you come and speak truth into our lives? And help us to see those places that we have uncertainty and doubt. And help us, Lord, to be a place, a church, where questions are welcomed and where we journey together this walk of faith, not in vain, but in the power of the resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is a magnificent exposition of the gospel. And these first 11 verses have everything to do with basic 
Christian teaching about Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and appearances, that they were historical. As I find it quite interesting that Paul was writing to a church in Corinth that was divided and confused. And here at the end of the letter, now there's one more chapter, chapter 16, but those are, are sort of an aside. He's saying farewells. He's saying salutations to folks. This is his last chance to really lay out a case for people. He could have taken that chapter, that precious space in that letter, to say, stick together. He could have said, remember why you were called together in the first place, uh, to do good works in your community. He could have talked about those divisions and said, one final plea, put your divisions aside and be united under the banner of Christ. Those would have all been good things. He doesn't do that. He doesn't talk about metaphor. He doesn't talk about doctrine. He talks about what he believes are facts. He says, here are the facts I need to leave you with. That which was handed down to me and I've passed on to you. He says, I'm passing this on to you. Hold to it. Stand by it. This is essential. And then he writes, the church in Corinth is being saved by it so long as they hold firm to the good news. Otherwise, you would have believed in vain. He says this message is embedded in Scripture, and in essence, it's four historical events. The death, burial, resurrection, and appearance of the Lord Jesus. But the gospel is not merely about the facts surrounding Jesus' execution and his funeral and that he rose from the grave on the third day. It's more than that. Paul writes of what's of first importance. He says what's of first importance is that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. We've been talking about a Christian worldview. That's what this five-week series about going back to the basics is all about. The Christian worldview is more than the historical evidence of Jesus' crucifixion and burial. It is that, but it's more than that. And it's more than the astonishing truth that he rose from the grave. But although it is that, it is more than that. The hub of the wheel of Christianity is that Jesus Christ was raised so that we might be redeemed. And so we draw a distinction between the event itself and the significance of the event. That Christ died is a matter of history. That Christ died for our sins is the gospel itself. That is the heart of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried, and that God rose him from the grave on the third day, and that he was seen. As if the Scriptures themselves were not enough, and Paul knows they're not going to be enough for some of his audience, he anticipates that, and so Paul writes, there are lots of witnesses to these events. He says, the risen Lord Jesus appeared to Peter, the first one in the tomb. Well, the first one all the way into the tomb. The ladies were there first. Then to the 12. Then to more than 500 at one time. He says, 
hey, they're still walking around. You could come back to Jerusalem. You could talk to these people. They are alive. Some of them have passed away, but you could talk to them about what they saw. Then he appeared to James, Jesus' brother, and all the apostles. And finally, Paul puts his own name on the list of witnesses to Christ's resurrection at the end. The persecutor of the church, but called by God, saved by grace, chosen by Christ on the road to Damascus. At the heart of our faith is not questions and evidence about the event, so much as why did he have to die for me? That's the part of of our faith that we struggle with the most. There's a time that I'd spend most of my energy looking at the evidence, looking at the archaeological evidence, looking at all the historical evidence, and there's a ton of that. And I would hear sermons about that and read books about that. But even today, with all my years of walking with Jesus, I'm still wrestling with this question. Why did he have to die for me? What's the significance that he died for my sins? And the answer is, sin is so deep-rooted that without help we are incapable of breaking free. It, it, it enslaves us. Sin is like an addictive drug that destroys people's ability to live, even to understand that they have a problem when they have a problem. Those of us that have had addiction problems understand that analogy. It's not a metaphor. We understand the power, the destructive nature of sin. But God has acted to break sin's hold on us. Through the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection on the third day, God is able and has transformed our lives. We can bear testimony to that as Anup did last week. Jesus was offered by God as a substitute to pay the guilt of our sin, and to satisfy God's justice. And he alone was qualified to be a sacrifice because he was unlike any person who ever walked the face of the earth because he was without sin. And the rest of the chapter, though, is fascinating. If you read chapter 15, it's not about the evidence. It's not about who saw what, when, where. He doesn't go and find testimonies of those 500 that are still living to find out their story. The rest of the chapter is about our hope. The hope that because he lives, we might live. The hope that because he lives, when our loved one passes away and we go and we say goodbye to them, we celebrate their life, we can do what? We can bear witness to the hope of the resurrection. Not hopeful thinking, but lasting, true Hope. God Himself paying the penalty for our sin. That's what I wrestle with. I believe it happened. I've seen evidence that it happened. I've seen the change that it does in people's lives to confirm that. I've rested my whole life on that. But that God Himself would pay for my sin. That's why I need church. That's why I need you. That's why I need this table to come again and again and say, Lord, really? I I, I doubt that. 
Why would you do that for me? Paul writes in his second letter to the church in Corinth, chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might be able to live rightly with God and with one another. And so the central symbol of our faith is the empty cross. The empty cross is a sign that we don't have to seek the living among the dead. That Christ is alive. But it begs the question, what difference would have made if he didn't rise? What difference would have made if this was just all a big story that helped us feel better at nighttime when we say goodnight to our kids or help us feel comforted when we say goodbye to a loved one? What would happen? What difference would it have made if Christ had not been raised? And there are three points. And this comes from Discipleship Essentials, a great book that I'm going through with my men's group on Wednesday nights. Number one, without the resurrection, we could have sympathy without victory. The cross is a demonstration of God's love for us. But we need more than empathy. I need more than someone saying, I love you, I feel your pain. I need rescue. I need someone who can fix the problem. Someone who can give me wisdom and guidance and courage and and insight. And more than anything, rescue out of my condition. Without the resurrection, we would only have sympathy, a pat on the back, instead of victory over our pain. If he wasn't raised, Satan would have won. Paul implies that the cross was a trap into which Satan fell, not seeing that God's plan all along was to use the cross, this instrument of torture, the father and son in agreement, sending the son to save us. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus Christ made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He embarrassed the evil one. If that wasn't a real embarrassment, then Satan has won. He's won the world. He's won every battle, every genocide, every war is a mark in his win column if Christ has not been raised. And finally, if Christ wasn't raised, death would remain our final enemy. The final obstacle we all will face is death. But Jesus took on our humanity, and he went through that grave and came up that we might live. That's why when we're baptized in immersion, we we go down into the water, into that watery grave, and we come up in new life. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. By his death, we might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to be afraid to die. I'm going to give you a fourth one. Finally, the cross brings not only forgiveness of sin, but resurrection, new life, 
offers us empowerment in this life, here and now. These are the basics, the essence of what we believe based on fact and experienced by faith. We are to be committed to showing his glory in a fallen world and the power of the gospel to save. He died and rose again that we might live a new life by faith, living each day as his disciples. Faith remains incomplete without trust. We must entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ as Savior and commit our lives to him as Lord. Let us pray. So God, we do commit our lives to you afresh this day. And yet, Lord, we still have questions. We struggle with questions about what actually happened. We struggle with questions about what's happening even now. Are we worthy to come forward? Is something going to happen when we receive communion this hour? Do you really have hope for us today? Speak into our lives at this hour that which we need to hear. And give us, Lord, victory again in Jesus. The death has been swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Friends, please take your hymnal and let's stand on up and let's sing Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us, hymn number 387. Thank you.